Brian Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Mike Wilson, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, as well as Dr. Kimberly Nordstrom, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Colorado. And we've got our behavioral health segment here uh, talking about uh, some of the issues uh, regarding our mental and behavioral uh, health uh, patients in the emergency departments of mental health boarding, uh, as well as some of the issues regarding agitation, delirium, um, and uh, suicide as well. So they got several articles. We've got a whole spread right here. It's starting to look like a research forum in the booth. I thought I just had all my cool recording equipment, and all of a sudden we're laid out like we're going to do some uh, presentations. So I don't want to take up any more time because there's a lot of stuff we want to discuss here. It's a huge issue uh, for us in emergency medicine, dealing with behavioral health in the emergency department, the increased incidence of boarding challenges, getting disposition uh, plans on these patients, and then helping dealing with the patients that are in acute crisis. So let's just start off, uh, Mike, just let us know um, where we want to roll off from and uh, some of the data and things that can help our docs out there manage these patients in the emergency department. So Ryan, thank you. Kim and I are honored to be here. Longtime listeners, first time uh, attendees here in the booth uh, with the, the, the uh, podcast microphone. So <clears throat> thanks for having us on the program. Um, so we are here to talk about a, a problem that is no stranger to any emergency physician today, and that's uh, boarding in our ED, mm -hmm. especially of psych uh, patients. Um, Kim uh, has some statistics, which I think will sort of set the tone and okay. probably depress all the listeners, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> uh, so just recently, the American Psychiatric Association uh, published a resource document specifically on this topic. Kim published a resource document on this topic for the American Psychiatric <laughs> Association. <laughs> on uh, psychiatric boarding, obviously. Okay. And it's in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this resource document goes into a lot of different proposed solutions. And Mike and I will be having a webinar in on December 11th, and ASAP will be uh, spreading the word, publicizing it. It's a joint event between ASAP and the APA. And so we'll go into a lot of the larger interventions. Um, but talking about the scope of the problem, why are we talking about boarding a mentally ill? Boarding mm -hmm. in and of itself is a problem for emergency medicine. One survey reported that 11% of all ED patients are boarded, mm -hmm. but that 21.5% of all psych ED patients end up being boarded. Um, if you look back in that tw 2008 ASEP survey, 79% um, of the 328 respondents, so a, a fair size, um, reported that psych patients boarded in their EDs. And 55% said that this happened either daily or almost daily, several mm -hmm. times a week. But the most alarming statistic in that survey was that 62% of the respondents um, said that psych services were not involved with patients during boarding. So there was no active treatment that was happening during that boarding period. Um, and average reported boarding times are anywhere from six to 34 hours. Okay. So if you're imagining that much time in the ED without active treatment, obviously it becomes a concern. And that's why the APA wanted to get involved and, and, and start trying to come up with interventions with their colleagues, our colleagues in emergency medicine. You can imagine if you had an acute condition in the emergency department, you know, whether not related to behavioral health, such as cardiac condition, uh, TIA, stroke condition, infection, and we waited, 
you know, six to 36 hours with no significant intervention, that would not be considered by any stretch of the imagination a, a decent standard of care uh, for the patients in, in delay. And I've actually seen uh, several instances of uh, issues with CMS with potential EMTALA violations uh, of that nature just because of these type situations. Of course, there was the big South Carolina cases um, associated uh, with the distribution, the disposition of patients uh, in their facilities. And so it's, it becomes a, a, a big issue that has to be a consideration. Um, and, and with that, did you find anything that helps kind of guide the next steps for these boarding issues or solutions or things that we need to have done? Right, great. So thanks for that excellent introduction. Yeah, so we actually want to present or talk about a couple of things that folks can do uh-huh. on the podcast. Um, you know, on their next shift, these are ASEP tools. Um, okay. And the first one is the ADEPT tool. And we'll also talk about the new iCare2e tool, uh, which I think was supposed to be iCare2, uh, but, uh, but it didn't work out quite that. Uh, the mnemonic didn't work out so easily. So you'll hear me say iCare2e. Uh, and these are available not only um, at a journal near you, mm-hmm. um, both of these articles are in press, uh, one at Annals, the other one at the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, but also available as bedside uh, downloads you can get okay. from the Play Store. So with that little shout out to the ASEP uh, Point of Care Tools folks, let's talk a little bit about the ADEPT tool. Okay. And this was headed up by our good friend Christina Shenvi, so shout out to Christina and also Maura Kennedy. Um, and we wanted to look at or wanted to give docs a tool. What do you do when you have a confused or delirious elderly patient in your ED? Uh, Kim, you want to talk about the first A? The first A, so in adept, the first A is assess. And okay. I think this is, yeah. this is not rocket science. Assess <laughs> really is for assess for life right. threats. This is where you're doing your basic history and physical. Um, what's cool about this tool, again, is it's bedside. You could either have it on your phone through the MPOC app, or you could have it on your computer. Or you download it from the website, and mm-hmm. this is an ASAP um, exclusive ASAP uh, member uh, tool. And um, the point is, is you bring it bedside. It reminds you of all those good things that you probably would have done, but there's a lot going on, so it's it's just walking you through. Right. So assess is basically doing that history physical. Um, this patient probably is not the best historian because of what they're going through at the time. So it reminds you to get as much collateral information as possible. Um, and what we're looking for here, are what, what's the underlying issue? And that leads us into B, B. right? Detecting. Right. Um, Which is actually, in the mnemonic, it's diagnose, but it really means right. detect. You want to mm-hmm. talk about yeah. it? Uh, I, you know, I think that is... The first step, we do this every day, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's what emergency physicians do. The second step, we don't really do too well. I don't know if your ED is um, like mine, but we don't yet have a protocol in place where we where we are screening elderly patients routinely. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should be. Um, and if Christina Shenvi, if you're listening to this, uh, we're we're working on one. But uh, we recommend the delirium triage scale. Um, Great sensitivity, a little lower specificity. If you find something, if you get positive on that, you can use some other ones, okay? Uh, So that takes us into the E. Um, And And actually, don't hate me, Mike, but I I want to talk a tiny bit more about that DTS, the uh, delirium uh, triage screen. The the good thing about the screen is that you do not need collateral information. This is, you look at the patient, what's their level of consciousness, if it Mm -hmm. is 
not good, you, you automatically assume that there's delirium. And then you go into maybe a screener that's more specific, like a, a CAM or a brief CAM. Or if their level of consciousness is fine, you do a quick inattention screen. You, you have the patient spell world backward, you know, something very simple. And if that is negative, or I should say positive, they're having trouble doing it, again, that leads you to being a, a little bit more confident that delirium is going on. And then you do a, a screen that's more specific. I mean, you know, we should actually mention a little bit. So, like, uh, Ryan, you probably know this, but why can't actually you just look at a patient, an elderly patient, coming in and saying, ah, delirium, yes, delirium, no? I mean, my patients are actually pretty good at, at brushing, at, at being able so, to hide a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, that old tradition, that old question of, of, um, uh, of what year is it? Oh, you know that. Uh, right. I don't need to tell you that. You're right. a smart doctor. Yeah. Right. And that's true. And, you know, studies have shown that uh, in the ED we miss up to as many as 72% of folks. Now that's kind of on the extreme end. Mm -hmm. But we do certainly miss the majority of it. And I think that's the reason. We get kind of fooled. Folks come in, they're yeah. used to playing it off, and, and they yeah. can until they get really severe. Because that hyperactive delirium is one that I think we all feel much more comfortable mm -hmm. sure. with. We yeah. see it. We are like, oh, that person is delirious. You know, you know it when you see it. It's that hypoactive delirium mm -hmm. where they're just sitting quietly. And, they're, and they and won't they're, talk. They'll, right. they'll let the family answer. And then right. they'll kind of answer always kind of with a deflecting kind of joke. And right. are you feeling okay? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Fine. Exactly. Yeah, who's, uh, who is this right here? Oh, you know who she is. <laughs> By the time they're hitting the nurse with their cane, I agree, yes. it's a lot easier to recognize, but that's, right. uh, that's in the minority, for sure. All right, so E, evaluate. Um, and that is try and figure out the underlying cause uh, of the delirium. No surprise here, infections are the major cause. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So we've done our assessment, we've done that detection, we feel comfortable that delirium is in play, and now it's taking that differential diagnosis and... Um, for cause of delirium okay. and really having guided tests. And yes, this is a psychiatrist who is saying, don't do universal <laughs> testing. I know it's now forever, you know, in- We're gonna jot that down. Right, exactly. You're gonna timestamp this. Right, put it on <laughs> the calendar. In perpetuity. There's at least one psychiatrist who doesn't believe in universal testing, but this is, when you go into this tool, it'll help with that differential. It'll help jog thoughts around um, what testing might actually make some sense in this case. Hey, we should, we should mention one big pitfall here. We all do it. I do it. <clears throat> we shouldn't do it, but we do it anyway. And that is you get that urine on this mm -hmm. elderly, confused patient, and you blame it on a urinary tract infection. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, lots of the time it is. Lots of time it is. Uh, but remember, elderly patients are going to have a lot of asymptomatic bacteriuria. So be really careful unless you have more information about blaming that altered mental status solely on that urine. Think of other causes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, so that takes us to P, prevent. And the, the P here is prevent it from getting worse. Um, I don't want to shock any of the listeners. EDs are associated with uh, a lot of delirium, right? Absolutely. Even if you're not delirious when you come in, by the time mm -hmm. we shine bright lights in your face, put you in the back hall where you can't get any sleep. For, oh, no. You know? Imagine 34 hours of that, right? In a noisy Absolutely. environment, lights right. all night. Exactly. You know, once yeah. the patients finally get quiet, it's when the staff starts to get louder in the middle of the night. <laughs> right. Talking about whatever they want to talk about on night shift. Yes. And now imagine right. this is ridiculously busy. Maybe, heaven forbid, you're on divert, mm -hmm. and you have people lined up in the hallways on gurneys. 
that's probably not the best place for that delirious patient. And so we talk about iatrogenic delirium. So mm -hmm. they may have already come in quite compromised and um, just the environment can cause symptoms of delirium. So that's why we have prevent here. Um, it seems weird that you go that far down into the mnemonic and prevention is now listed. But in fact, it's really to remind everyone, you know, it might make sense to do those things um, for the individual mm -hmm. to not make it worse. Or if you have a compromised elderly patient who isn't currently delirious, you might want to be mindful that you actually can create those symptoms just by this environment. You know, I think it's here because this is about the point where people are reaching for the Haldol and Ativan right. to, to uh, sedate uh, yes. grandma or grandpa who are agitated. And if you are reaching for a deliriogenic med to treat a, a delirious patient, uh, stop. Read this paper. Go, go to the website. Doesn't actually, right? doesn't uh, actually make it any better. Nice, right, nice right. transition to treat. Right. Which is the well, before we you, oh, absolutely sorry. before we no before we lose the leave the P though we should mention there are some simple things that folks can do, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's you have to get the nursing staff on board. But there are so many easy things to do. Make sure they have their glasses. You know, let them get up to to go to the bathroom. Uh, make sure that they have some sort of familiar surrounding. If there's family, let the family be there with them. So I think those are easy things that we could do, right. right? We're so intent on keeping this patient in bed. If they want to walk, as long as they're not falling over, let them walk with the tech. Yeah, give them the assistance and the tools they need to actually do it safely. And yeah. actually, that's, that's, been a, that's been a big that's push recently was uh, that we're seeing we're so concerned about the potential of falls in our departments. Are we actually causing harm in our patients because we're forcing them to stay in bed? Right. We're right. restraining them, we're restricting them, we got all these alarms that are going off. Yes. You know, how much are we harming in order to prevent a fall and, and protect ourselves legally? Right, right. 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 In, in talking about that, so right. um, also thinking about prevention for that, that individual tethering of patients. So when we talk about restraints here, we're not talking about necessarily mental health restraints. This is the restraint caused by the blood pressure cuff mm -hmm. or all the monitoring. Right. And it's the Foley it, the, the part of this is in. like yeah. being mindful of what, what does this patient actually need for that type of monitoring? Because you are tethering them to a bed. And even when you're not delirious, having that, having the Foley in, very uncomfortable, disconcerting, um, you know, uh, having a blood pressure cuff that all of a sudden is constricting. Every and then 15 release, minutes. Yes. And, and, and so, um, it's about being mindful of that. One thing else I love about this mnemonic is within this prevent um, area, it also talks about what are things that the hospital can be doing. So we talk about the individual patient, but then we also discuss protocols. Mm -hmm. So a protocol might be something like a fast track for someone who's considered this higher risk for delirium or already frankly delirious. Maybe they get a priority for that medicine bed. Uh, but having the hospital talk about this with the emergency department and coming up with those types of protocols. At the risk of uh, offending our geriatric ED colleagues, I'm not sure you need a separate geriatric ED, but you do need folks that are geriatric ED minded. Okay. And that's much easier in a, in a geriatric ED, but if you don't have that space, make sure your folks have the, the right training. And there are standards, you can get them online. Uh, there's actually a, a section at ASEP dedicated to helping folks take better care of older folks. Um, and thanks for the great work that they're doing. So that takes us to the fifth, um, the fifth one and the last one, and that is treat. And unfortunately, every time we present this mnemonic, people kind of interrupt us right at the A or the B and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's get to, let's get to treatment. <laughs> and there's a reason that this is, is last, um, and that's because when we think treatment, 
we don't think things like, oh, I'm uh, taking the Foley out, letting the, the blood pressure cuff off, letting them walk. We think medication, right? Right. And all of the medication in the over 65 population is contraindicated, uh, relatively contraindicated before you get a lot of angry emails, but still is listed on the beer's criteria. Okay. Uh, antipsychotics carry a black box warning. Mm -hmm. The benzos, as we know, are notorious for making delirium worse. Right. Uh, Diphenhydramine, any uh, anticholinergics, exactly. right? right? It, it, that could make it worse. It could be part of the cause of the delirium to begin with. Um, so in this tool, we kind of present other treatments. Mm -hmm. So um, let's start out with talking to the patients, right. verbal de-escalation. De See if that will work. Okay. Right. Let's not jump right to the injected medications. I agree right. with Kim on this. And as you talked about before, um, just having uh, visual cues, having family members, those kind of things, we talked a little bit about on prevention, are also part of the treatment. And then lastly, we do go into medications, and you know, we, we, we put those medications that we say, well, this one is pretty, pretty contraindicated. If you could stay away from anticholinergics, right. like, do your best. Right. Um, one step above that, benzodiazepines, you know, mm -hmm. if you have to, have to, and especially some of these elderly patients are on them historically, so you don't want to sure. create a withdrawal, right? right? Which then you're, now you got a new confounder, and then it, it, it kind of goes into some other ideas for treatments, and so. So let's talk about, I guess, if you are, if your back is against the wall, you've done the A to the D, the E, the P, now you're to the T. Verbal de-escalation didn't work. Let's talk about some medications that, if you have no other choice, um, might not be as bad to administer to mm -hmm. your elderly patients, but you still shouldn't be reaching for them first. <clears throat> the best evidence, although there's not great evidence on any of this, best evidence is going to be from low-dose olanzapine or risperidone. But Kim and I actually have data on this. If you give these to older folks, the blood pressure drops are going to be larger mm -hmm. in the younger folks for lots of understandable reasons, right? They're probably volume status is down. Right. They're probably on a bunch of other meds that, uh, you know, cause vasodilation anyway. So be real careful, go low and slow. Um, you can't take the medicine back out of the patient, but you can always take the medicine off the shelf and give more if you need to. Yeah, Anything bad? Catchy. Yeah, it is. That's, <laughs> and, the, yeah. and their compensatory mechanisms just aren't as, they, they right. just, they, their, their, their responses to medications are completely different than you're gonna have with the uh, younger, healthier population whether it's a co-founder of the comorbid medical conditions or if it's actually just the fact that our bodies as we get older just don't behave like they're supposed to. Right. There's something to that. Yes. yes. And so we made it through. The nice thing about this is I've been following along as they've been talking about it on the uh, EMPOC um, app. We're relieved. We thought you were just checking your email. Oh, you thought I was, I was surfing. <laughs> I'm here monitoring right. the, the yeah. everything on, on Twitter. Yeah. No, I'm actually following through and uh, with the ADEPT tool, and so a step-by-step. Step. And one of the nice things about it, um, if you want to know, because a lot of people out there want to know kind of what the, the background behind the decisions being made, each section of this tool uh, has the resources, uh, the, the references associated with them. So you just run through the, the assess is perform a thorough evaluation, the history and medical uh, medication review and collateral information, perform thorough physical examination, and the next step is going to be the references. So everything's right there. If you want to dig into it and kind of see the basis behind a lot of these, you can uh, check them out uh, there. And again, it's a uh, pretty easy, uh, made, made simple, uh, made for folks like me, uh, tool right there that we can just walk through. So you've got these nice big uh, articles in front of you, and I had a little easy. <laughs> 
I had an easier job with it than you did. I yeah. mean, with the, just because I'm just like clicking buttons and it tells me exactly what to do. Maybe a hundred words total in the entire thing. Right. And that's the whole point. You're doing it on your phone. It's right. that mm -hmm. simple. You can be right. in the ED. It's busy. you got a lot going on. And this isn't to tell you your business. This is just to remind you of key pieces. Well, it's just a tool. Right. That yeah. the, 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 I mean, when you're in the a profession where you cover 100% of the uh, spectrum and breadth of medicine, uh, health care, diseases, injuries, uh, on occasion it's, it's good to have a little tool that can help you just remind you of the next steps and especially if you're in a situation where you don't have a ton of it, um, a, a ton of these types of situations and patients. I've got a lot of geriatric patients in my department, so we, we deal with a fair amount of it. Um, but other places, you don't have a lot. You have a younger population. So a, lot of, um, a lot of centrally located and academic centers may not have a ton of elderly. It tends to be a younger population in those areas. So you know, having these available uh, can help you kind of work through these things, especially in an education standpoint, working with the uh, nurses, techs, and other staff uh, when you're caring for it, because it is a teamwork approach, um, because they're going to be interacting with the patients a lot more typically than we will as we work through our day uh, in, in our shift. Um, so next stages, we got to talk about eye care 2E. Yes, yeah. most definitely. And this is a, a great thing to talk about in terms of boarding, because every emergency physician I know thinks that they have uh, a department filled with folks who've come in with mm -hmm. suicidal ideation, and there's nowhere to send them. Right. Um, so, uh, we're really proud to talk about this effort. Kim and I partnered with ASAP and also the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, and came up with a tool, um, iCare2E, also on the, the web. You can Google it the same way you did ADAPT by typing in ASAP and iCare2E. If you don't type in iCare2E, you get, I think, a greeting card company. So, make sure you put that two in there. Um, Lest you think, man, what are these guys doing? This is not helpful, but it's very pleasant and nice. It's uplifting. And if you're at all skeptical, skeptical, yes, of uh, these newfound tools, uh, I would really say you should take a look at the document. Uh, this is impressed with the yeah. American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The methodology section is very complete. So there were only six writers that were all experts in different parts of this field we had a much larger panel review all of this with I believe 42 experts mm -hmm. that came together to look at the tool to understand how we came up with grading and, and, and to really actually pick apart our methodology. So we feel really good about this methodology. So if, if you're at all skeptical, look at the paper because then you may be more likely to use the tool. I'm pretty sure it was only like 23 experts, but they had okay. so many opinions, it was like 42. It did feel yeah. like 42. Yeah. They had the opinions of 42 people. <laughs> yeah, they really, they, anyway. Uh, so Kim's right, we're very proud of this. This was done the right way. This was done in accordance with Institute of Medicine uh, recommendations on how to make a clinical decision guideline. Mm -hmm. uh, there were as many emergency physicians on it as there were outside specialists. It was reviewed by ASAP and endorsed by the ASAP president. It was reviewed by some outside organizations like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, and the Emergency Nurses Association. So shout out to those folks. Uh, and trust me, part of the reason it's just coming out in press now is all of those folks have, have had input into the, the final document. Right. Okay, so uh, I don't think we need to give a scope of the problem here. If no. you've worked in an ED lately, you, you know that um, uh, folks with suicidal ideation are coming in and we don't always have great access to mental health specialists. Mm -hmm. I personally call Kim even when I'm working the night shift, but uh, 
If you don't have Kim's number. He has Kim's been known number, to do that. That's right. If you don't have Kim's <laughs> phone number, uh, contact Ryan. But anyway, so let's talk a little bit about the tool. Um, so iCare2E, the I stands for identify. So when somebody comes in and said, I just tried to commit suicide, uh-huh. it doesn't take much to identify that. Or they say, I have suicidal ideation, I want to die. But there are many people who come in, status post uh, motor vehicle accident, and you're left to wonder, mm-hmm. was that a suicide attempt or were they texting? Right? Or an overdose, very classically. Or an yeah. overdose, yeah. right. So the first part of the identify is to actually give you some scenarios that should be suspect, mm-hmm. right? It might be that it wasn't a suicide attempt at all, but it should at least put a little red flag in your mind. Um, and that's the beginning of the identify. So it's what's the possible suicide risk? Other clues, what are things that if you see could be flags? Again, the person who is really suicidal is probably not going to tell you. They want to be discharged so that they complete, so that they can complete the act, okay? so. Those, the, the highest risk suicidal patient is going to say, oh no, my wife made me come in for my hypertension. Right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be something else. So you look for other clues. And then we do, I, I know there's the back and forth on this about screen, but we do recommend a screen in triage. Um, and Although ASEP does not. We should mention that since we're on an ASEP podcast. Yeah. ASEP has been consistently... Uh, uh, or has consistently stated the idea that if you you should only screen when you have the resources to do it. So, okay. right. but the suicide world, the suicidologists, the folks that reviewed this, consistently for it, as Kim mentioned. Right, right. So we we did put that in because in the end that was consensus and it was considered best practice. But I totally get the issue of if you don't have anything, if you don't have the ability to do anything with it. I so I get the emergency medicine perspective on that. Um, let's talk a little bit about how to screen in okay. triage, because uh, if you, if your department is just doing the, hey, do you want to kill yourself, uh, you're probably getting a lot of uh, inaccurate answers. Mm-hmm. You're probably missing as many people as you're getting false positives, right? Yeah. Uh, so if you are going to screen, we know, uh, we have some data actually, uh, that if you are screening with unstandardized questions, you get terrible results. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to screen, you do need to use a standardized screen in triage. That's not just a good idea, that's actually a new Joint Commission requirement starting in July, actually this past July. So, uh, Kim, do you want to talk about the, any of the, the screening screeners. tools? So, you know, in, in the tool, we do talk about the patient safety screener, and it was developed by ED Safe Investigators. So it was developed for the ED environment, and that is partly why we put that one forward. It's a three-question screener with only a fourth question if the third question is positive. So it is a quickie screen, and it it gets to the gist of it. Um, Other screeners are available. There's a wide range of screeners, but none of them are um, validated in the emergency department. Now, to to be fair, the Joint Commission does uh, recommend an array of them. And Joint Commission, if you are listening... Uh, in our systematic review, ED Safe is the only one validated in the ED environment, just like Kim said. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to apply these regulations to the ED, we recommend you use the one that was validated, validated in the there. ED. Right. Plus, it's three questions. Right? right. Now, if you're positive on that, there is a secondary screener, um, and that information is online. You can go to the tool and find out more information about it. Don't forget, of course, about presentations that might suggest self harm. That 
people might actually say no to uh, mm -hmm. thoughts of suicide, things like overdose. Yeah. Right? right. It's a big one. And so uh, following ASEP guidelines, a screener is not an assessment. So a screener right. is just another clue. So again, if, if you have red flags on the other parts of the identifying the suicide patient and um, the screener is negative, that does not mean you do not have someone who just attempted sitting in right. front of you. Right. So this is all about adding to the picture. So that is identify. That's right. C is communicate. I think uh, this is something ED physicians do every day and do pretty well, which is talk to the patients. Sure, and I agree with you. I, when I have talked to my ED colleagues, um, and, and they, they say to me, well, Kim, I don't have an hour like you do to sit with them. And I said, dude, I'm an emergency psychiatrist. I don't have an hour either. I, I'm, I'm running from you know bay to bay or room to room, just like you are. So there are some tips in here under communicate on how to create a kind of a safe communication environment for mm -hmm. a patient. Uh, when you run into a room and you just say, are you suicidal? Probably not going to get any type of answer that's right. going to be helpful to you. Um, and so there's some tips in terms of even if you're not truly slowing down, how to make yourself appear like you're in the moment, building rapport, slowing down, making sure that you're not asking these questions in the hallway, you know, having a little bit more... Um, we can't say there's 100% confidentiality, but we can at right. least say, here's a private place for us to have this discussion. So that is key also. Um, and, and so communicate seems um, like something, well, that you roll your eyes when you see this on the mnemonic, uh, because duh, we all do it. Well, there are some ways that you can do it where you're more likely to get truth. You're more likely to get um, what the patient is actually feeling not what the patient wants to tell you in the moment because you're rushing, okay? So that's communicate. And you know, and there is some evidence, like Kim was saying, if you are non-judgmental, you ask the questions, you get more accurate answers. Mm -hmm. But that's true of pretty much every condition we yeah. see. Yeah. Right. right. All right, so that takes us on to the A, and that is assess for medical life threats. And there have, we're not gonna spend too much time on this. There have been uh, at least two ASEP clinical policies in the last 15 years talking about the medical screening exam for psych patients. Uh, Kim and I published a systematic review last year, at the end of last year, looking at all the literature in existence on uh, medical screening exams for psych patients. Mm -hmm. I don't want to shock anyone. Uh, it's terrible. And this is why psychiatrists and emergency medicine physicians fight a lot, right? Because it's terrible. You can point to any amount of bad evidence that you want on, on either side. Right. Right, um, and that is part of the assess. We also say assess for the environment. Mm -hmm. So you have sure. someone that you believe, they may not have said they're suicidal, but you believe either just attempted suicide or that they are feeling suicidal. Then, okay, what can you do to make sure the environment is safe? Are there sharps in the room? Are there tethers? Are there, you know, and you look to your room. Um, based on your individual hospital protocol, does it make sense to have a sitter? Does it make sense to have someone, you know, monitoring the patient the whole time? Um, what is your hospital protocol on possessions? So personally, when I was a mental health screener, this was back in medical school, I worked in an emergency department and I worked for the local mental health center and I should not have been working. I didn't know what I was doing at all. 
And I was Unlike the current medical screeners, we love you guys. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, mental health screeners. Seriously, we love you all. And I'll tell you, I was having a, um, I was evaluating a patient with borderline personality disorder who didn't like where she thought our interview was going and quickly, before I could move, pulled out a bottle of pills and downed them like this. Because that particular ED had no uh, protocol on possessions for suicidal mm -hmm. patients. So no one had looked in the purse, you know, the, the purse wasn't put aside. Um, and so I'm not saying you need to change your protocols, but you do need to be mindful that some, some patients may actually even attempt right there sitting in front of you. Well, I've had that. I've had that one of the times I was assaulting the emergency department was oh that very situation where somebody tried to down a bunch of pills right in front of me. Yep. Uh, and you tried to take it away. Well, I got the pills out, but unfortunately didn't get my arm out in time. Oh, oh, oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that happens. Um, hey, we should mention, by the way, while we're on the environment, if you uh, have patients at high risk of suicide in your ED, mm -hmm. which we all do, Joint Commission now requires ligature-free rooms, one-to-one -one observation within arm's reach. So that is an important component to know about the environment. Right. And if your, uh, if your first thought when I said that is, well, I'll just make sure they're all low to moderate risk of suicide, well, then we're going to talk about that next in the, in the R. <laughs> the first R is the risk assessment. Okay. And this is, you know, I'm an emergency psychiatrist. This is my bread and butter. So I could talk about it for hours. You said I have like 20 minutes, so I guess I'll have to hurry. <laughs> um, and that is why this tool is so great, because I don't even have to do any talking. You just have to look at the tool. So what do we look at? when we're doing a risk assessment. Well, first we're looking at the current mental state. What is the recent history? What is the patient currently feeling? When they say they're suicidal, what does that mean? Like mm -hmm. not worth living? Like today really sucks, I would like to die. If a meteor hit me, that would be cool. Or is it, well, I plan to kill myself today by overdose on those pills that I have stacked up you know, at my house, and I have about 500 of them. I think that should do the job, right? You get granular when mm -hmm. you're asking about suicide. Don't allow superficial. You gotta get in deep, and you gotta understand really what the, the patient is experiencing and imagining. Um, so, so Kim, when you say that, I keep thinking, I'm just gonna pull out a, a standard risk assessment tool and just do that. Can you talk a little bit about why that's, uh, why can't I get deep that way? Right. Well, okay, if you have a patient who is um, actively suicidal, meaning they have intent and they are going to want to uh, minimize, mm -hmm. if, you, if you just do check boxes, you're gonna miss that. Um, working through this, again, this doesn't have to take long. I'm in that same emergency department you are. This doesn't have to take an hour. You've, you've gotten social history and all of that um, from, from other sources usually. Uh, maybe the nurse or if you have a social worker in your department, you're getting bits of information from other sources. It's in your EHR. You can just read it. You're focused on the meat and potatoes. So if you just go with a standard screen or if you hand a patient something, you're not going to be able to pick up on inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, again, not building up that rapport where you're going to get more um, truthful answers. Kim, yeah. Kim's yeah. absolutely right about that, and I'll just sort of add to that. Everybody wants the perfect screen. Hey, right. why can't I just give the Columbia to the patient in the room, let them right. fill it out, and I'll come up with a score, and then we will know their disposition. Right. And the answer is that doesn't work. The positive predictive validity or positive predictive value of these tools are 
low enough that you can't do that. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it gets a little bit uh, tricky here with the Joint Commission guidelines, because what I'm telling you is out of the systematic review, that if you use a tool as an interview guide, you'll get better information, but you can't use any particular score to decide whether they come in or go home. You okay. can't do that. However, here's where it gets tricky with the Joint Commission guidelines. Joint Commission has said, hey, uh, Ryan, in your ED, you need to start grading folks at low, moderate, or high risk of suicide. Never mind the fact that nobody has satisfactorily defined what that means. Mm -hmm. How many attempts in the next 30 days is low versus high? We don't know. But the Joint Commission has said we're going to do that anyway. And you have to use some sort of risk assessment tool, evidence-based tool, for deciding who's high versus low risk. Okay. And so this 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 tool, the eye care tool, has the necessary or what what we believe are the necessary components of a risk assessment. Your local hospital may have in your EHR these components already embedded that will take you through your history to make sure you capture these things. But just in case they don't, this is where this tool okay. comes in to work you through. So that current mental state and uh, recent history, previous attempts, what is your best predictor? Past attempts. So it's important that you ask. Um, when somebody says that they cut their wrist in the past, ask the next question. When you did that, were you trying to kill yourself or did it? was it for some other reason? Because patients with borderline personality disorder they, they do that for a different reason, and mm -hmm. that's a whole other lecture. Um, and so you have to ask that next question. Access to lethal means, you're going to want to know. So especially if that person says their intent is when they leave here, they're going to use their gun at home or they're going to overdose on pills. Do they have a cache of pills at home? Like you, you actually want to ask those questions. Um, what other life stressors are going on? So you're looking at risk factors. You're trying to delve into those things that, what can you do in the emergency department? You can work on those dynamic risk factors, right? Um, less so for the static ones. The fact that, you know, the person is a 55-year-old white male who's divorced, you can't do anything about that, mm -hmm. but you can do something with the fact that he's currently intoxicated, that he has a gun at home. You know, there's those kind of things that will come up if you go through a risk, um, a, a true risk assessment. And then lastly, protective factors. There are those factors that even when a person is on the brink, it may keep them from going over. And um, a, a typical one, one that I really hone in on in, when I'm in the ED is um, responsibility. It has been found that people who feel very responsible to, it could be a pet, or to people, so their aged, aging uh, parents or their children, what would they do without me? I actually ask them those questions, and if I get a little bit of a positive there, I have them kind of work on some of that. I have them think about it. Mm -hmm. Now, some of this work I'm having them do, I leave the room as they're working and I come back, so it'll be, my assessment will be over time sometimes, because I need them to really be thinking and feeling. Um, but that's part of what I want them to be thinking about. And that goes into, I think it's our next, um, yeah, reduce the risk, yeah. which goes into safety planning. Yeah, can we, so yes. we should talk about that. And I know we're coming to the kind of the end of the podcast. So if it's uh, all right with both of you, I'll kind of summarize the next R and mm -hmm. the E together, because I think they're really part of the same thing. And, and I'll just set that up. Uh, Kim just gave an excellent explanation of what your psychiatrist does when they come down. Again, feel free to get uh, Kim's number. 
I'm sure she does not mind taking consultations over the phone. She's nodding yes. It, it looked like no, <laughs> but I'm yes. sure it was clearly yes. But what we know from the studies out there is that trying to do this has pretty low success. We're, we're really bad at predicting who's going to die by suicide or even who's going to attempt suicide in the next 30 days. Mm -hmm. We're really bad as a profession. So most of the emergency physicians I talk to really want to, to categorize that risk, helped along by those Joint Commission regulations we just talked about. I would like people to focus on reducing that risk. Okay. okay? And here's, the, here's the, the bread and butter of this tool. If you can't reduce the risk, you have to hospitalize the patient. If you can reduce the risk, and it, you, in your judgment, you've reduced it enough, then this might be a pa patient that's appropriate for discharge. Mm -hmm. okay? Or discharge to a lower level of care, exactly. not inpatient. So Agreed. it depends on what your community has. And so I hate when we just think the dichotomy of outpatient and inpatient. Mm -hmm. Does your community have a crisis stabilization unit, an adult treatment unit? Um, you know, what does your community have and can you keep them out of inpatient? Absolutely. There's only three things that have been shown to reduce the risk in the ED. And these are all level B evidence, um, actual studies behind these things. Kim already said one of them, that's lethal means counseling. We are terrible about this in the ED. We remember to ask if folks uh, have guns, uh, forgetting that they might try to die by pills mm -hmm. or by hanging or by any number of other means that we don't ask about. And in fact, we actually only ask about guns a minority of the time, according to the studies by Emmy Betts and others. So that's the first one, lethal means counseling. Second, safety planning. If your ED is not doing safety planning, it's time, it's time to start. Safety planning cuts the odds of dying by suicide within six months almost in half. A six-step, one-page safety plan cuts the odds of dying by suicide almost in half. And that's been shown by Stanley, uh, Barbara Stanley, Greg Brown, and, and others. Uh, it's a best practice. It's something that we should all be doing. Um, and it's time to get our social workers or our mental health folks to help us do that. The third one, and that's the E in this mnemonic, is post-discharge care and contact. So we know if you do a safety plan and you extend that care beyond uh, the ED, at least two phone calls, the risk of suicide drops dramatically. Anything to add to that? I, I think the other piece is that within this tool, you can actually download uh, a safety plan mm -hmm. that you can. Right. So if, if you're on the web, you're on your computer, you print it off and you hand it to the patient, or, or you have an extender hand it to the patient, you were saying a social worker or nurse. What I usually do is I'll hand it to the patient, give them the context of, you know, this is a guide to work on this safety planning. I'm gonna have you work on this. I'll be back in about 15 minutes. But then I personally go over that safety plan because I wanna make sure that this isn't something that's blow-offable. Like I wanna make sure again that this is granular, that when mm -hmm. the patient is feeling blank, they're gonna call Sally, and this is Sally's phone number. I want the safety plan as granular as possible um, and something that the patient actually feels that they could do. And I'm gonna feel a heck of a lot more comfortable discharging that patient. Other, otherwise, it just gets lost in between the car seats and the, the, the reminders to floss. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that is largely the ADEP tool and the eye care tool. And just to summarize for folks, um, the reason we're talking about that, these are things you can do when folks are in your emergency department. Uh, we don't have to be passive 
care providers, we can be active care providers. Here's two tools to help you do exactly that. Right. Let's let's get away from imagining boarding as hoteling, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Let's imagine boarding is active treatment until we can hand off to the next provider. Start getting things done. And as with the last one, I uh, was able to follow through with the suicide assessment eye care 2D in the uh, EMPOC app right here. And it's all, you click the links, and we we're just kind of, if you mentioned it, I click the link, kind of open that up, kind of see what we had. Uh, and it's all right there, can pull it in. Um, the idea being potentially even those uh, some of those printable uh, tools, actually just uh, making them into the smart phrases you can put into your system. It's already in the paperwork. It's there, so you're not having to pull it and print it every single time, uh, every single time that we, we do that. Um, as we wrap today, what are how can folks get in touch with you? I know we're going to get your phone number. <laughs> what are the things we can do to, um, uh, how can folks contact you if you have any questions, want to see further, kind of dig into this, how to apply these uh, applications? Because we did, we covered a ton of information in, in whatever, 44 minutes now. And so um, people are going to have questions. They're going to want to dig a little bit deeper. How can folks get in touch with you guys? Sure. And hey, our email addresses, uh, I believe, are on the website. Am I lying about that? If they're not, we will give them to, yeah, uh, to Ryan. Yep. Uh, we love email. Um, we love to talk about this stuff. Right. Uh, and and in again, case you didn't pick up that in the last 44 minutes. If you had any interest in what we were talking about, if you actually made it this far, you listened this long, then you have to um, join the webinar. That will be December 11th. And again, it's sponsored by ASAP as well as the APA. So and it's about psychiatric boarding. And you have to come to the National Update on Behavioral Emergencies. That's an annual conference that Kim and I help organize. Uh, it's about half emergency physicians, half mental health providers. Mm -hmm. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona, this year, December yeah. 11th through the 13th, uh, 2019. And so we've got both of those. If you download the EM Point of Care app, uh, you can get those. It's an ASAP member, but they're also available um, publicly as well. If you're not uh, online, you can see, uh, seek those out, get the uh, data, those resources there. Uh, talking here with Dr. Mike Wilson, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine, University of Arkansas for Medical Services. And Dr. Kimberly Nordstrom, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, University of Colorado. So Excellent. I appreciate it. Thank you for Thank your time. Thank you very much. A lot of information yep. um, right there. And uh, so good. dive into it. Start looking at those things in your emergency department, especially if you've got any, um, well, you're going to have the patients, but if you have the, especially if you've got um, longer times in the emergency department, so you can start to get those treatments, therapies, and plans uh, put it in place. As for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. That's youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com and at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Mm -hmm.